Good evening and welcome to Uni Church. My name's Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here at Uni Church. Uh, we've just started last week looking through this book of Isaiah, hearing from God what he's been doing, uh, a book written over 700 years uh, before Jesus, in a time 700 years before Jesus. And really what we're seeing is the Word of God come to us through this man, Isaiah. But one of the great things that we see about the Word of God is that it's not only God's Word in some random sense, but it's God's Word to us too. So as we come to this Word, I'd love you to leave your outlines open. Uh, If you've got your Bibles there, that'll be helpful. Why don't we pray together that God would help us to hear what He has for us to hear tonight as we open up His Word. Let's pray. Lord God, You know what our weeks have been like. You know the ups and downs of what has gone on and where our minds are and the things we're worried about and the things that we're proud of. We ask that tonight, as we have heard Your Word read, that by Your Spirit, You would show us Yourself. That we would see the God who speaks through the Scriptures, the God of history. And that by Your Spirit and through that Word, word, You'd help us to see ourselves through this Word. And to respond to You rightly. Please, Lord, by Your Spirit, move us tonight. Amen. Well, God is so many different things to so many different people. If you were to do a survey of what people think God is or who people think God is, you come up with a myriad of answers, things that people think about God. He's a human construct, a figment of your imagination, maybe. Uh, Others might say He's the creator of the universe or the, the force behind all nature, the unmoved mover, the first one to do anything. Others might come along and say, God is a person. Others might think God is themselves, or a cow, or according to Ariana Grande, a woman. There's almost as many different views of God as there are people on the planet. But what matters most is not who we say God is, but who God says He is. See, that's what makes the God of the Bible different from the God of every other religion the planet has ever seen, from every other conception of God that we have on earth. See, God, the God of the Scriptures, the God of the Bible, is not some ethereal being. He doesn't just exist in the clouds somewhere, floating around. He doesn't even exist just in the minds of some people. But He's stepped onto the pages of history. He's made promises throughout history, and we've seen those promises come about. He has kept them. He's ordered history to bring about His plans and purposes. History really is His story. And His story is really about who He is. Human history is about the true and living God and recognizing Him as He is. When Moses, who wrote probably the first five books of the Bible, met God for the first time in Exodus 3, he asked God this question. He asked this this being at the burning bush, Who are you? Who should I say has sent me? And God says to him, I am who I am. Or in other words, I will be who I will be. God's answer to the question of who are you is this, watch and learn. Watch and learn. And over the next 40 chapters of the book of Exodus, and really throughout the rest of human history, we get to see who God is as He reveals Himself in history, through people, through the acts of what goes on. We see it in Exodus, His his power over the Pharaoh of the time, freeing Israel from their slavery in Egypt. The plagues that He brought upon the Egyptians for not letting God's people go. The, The dividing of the Red Sea, the protecting of Israel with a pillar of cloud by the day and a pillar of fire by night. As Israel gets to Mount Sinai, they hear God speak from the mountain and the mountain shook. And people are so afraid to go near the mountain because they they know if they go near this God, they'll die. God gives them the Ten Commandments. He tells them how to live. And you see how that Judeo-Christian worldview is still the basis of our legal system today. God has His thumbprints all over human history. When Isaiah chapter 6, the vision that Emma just read for us, that we have open in front of us, God gives Isaiah another vision. And this time it's a picture of himself through the eyes of this seraphim or angel. It's, it's God's picture of him. It's who God says he is. 
And the question for us tonight, as we come and hear this picture of God, the question for us is this. How does this picture of God, God's picture of God, compare to the way that you think about God? Does it line up? What do you think about God in a way that is different from who He really is? So come with me and have a look at this vision in depth. Let's hear what God has to say about Himself. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, which is around 740 BC, I saw the Lord seated on high and lofty throne, and the hem of His robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above Him, and they had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. It's an amazing picture. I mean, who's ever seen a seraphim before, whatever this creature is? But it's a picture of what God is like, as God uses it to describe Himself to Isaiah. There are so many different ways that the Bible speaks of God. So many different ways that God describes Himself to us. God is love. He is peace. He is life. He is light. There are so many different ways that He's described, so many different aspects to His character and nature. But you know, throughout the whole Bible, there's only one characteristic of God that is repeated. And I don't mean that comes up more than once. I mean that He's repeated straight after one another. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, God is love, love, love. Or that God is peace, peace, peace. Or that God is light, light, light. Oh, but what we do here is that He is holy, holy, holy. Now in Hebrew, there's, there's no real way to kind of underline something. The language that this was written in, uh, there's no kind of underlining or italics. You don't have emojis to be like, this is real important or something like that. I don't know what you'd do, what emoji you'd put to say, this word is, is really important. Maybe those little sprinkle stars, you know, they could be floating above the word holy and it could be floating on the page. That'd be how you do it. But they didn't have that. So the way that you would communicate that something was vitally deep and important was repetition. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of armies. What is the holiness of God? It's point number one if you're following along. Holiness comes with a whole heap of baggage. Whenever I think of the word holy, the first kind of idea that comes into my head is some person with a ball in their mouth that says, holy. You know, I don't know, if you've ever seen uh, Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean, kind of act as some priest in a church, and he's like, holy is the Lord. That's what comes into my head, you know? I taught him a few things, that's why he's called Rowan Atkinson, same name as me. Maybe I'm as awkward as he is, I don't know. (laughs) But I think of this kind of religious, pompous holiness. You know, this person who says, I'm holier than thou. I don't know why I have to say it in an English accent, but it just, it feels like that, Right? What, what is holy? It's just religious word. But what it actually means is set apart, unique, unlike any other. And we do use it in common day language. We talk about holy ground. You know, someone might say, I'm, they might say to you, I, I got to stand on holy ground. What does that mean? Probably means that they're at Eden Park Stadium and they got to stand on the pitch and feel the grass and be like, wow, this is holy grass. doesn't mean it's got holes in it. <laughs> what it means is this, is, this is the place where sort of so important things happen. It's a place set aside for New Zealand to kick Australia in rugby. That's what it is set there for, because it seems to be what happens every time. It, it, it's set apart like, like no other. It's unique. We use that word, but when God uses it of Himself, it's raised to a whole new level. God is saying He is unlike anyone or anything you've ever seen before. Like any conception of Him you might have or any idea that goes around or any other view that people might say about God, He is so other, so different, so separate. His holiness is not just one of His attributes. It summarizes the completeness of who this God is. There is no one like Him. His glory fills the whole earth. 
In other words, the whole earth points to how great He is, how worthy of praise, how, how worthy of honor, how worthy of respect, how godlike He is. The heavens declare the glory of God. The stars proclaim His handiwork day after day. They pour forth speech. Do you know what they're saying? God is good. There is no one like Him. He made this world and He is in control. The intricacies of, of the human system, that the, to think that we are just an accident, to think that we were just made with the systems and, and, and the whole way our bodies work by accident. No, we point to the fact that there is a designer, that there is a creator. The whole earth is pointing to the fact that there is a God and He is unlike any other. And so He is worthy of praise and honor and glory. A little later in the book of Isaiah, God will say this through Isaiah. Isaiah 42 verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. There is not one thing or person in the whole of the universe that deserves the focus of the attention, of the glory and the praise and the honor more than the true and living God. He is the Lord. That is His name. He will not give His glory to another. And in this vision, this holiness of God, this so otherness, this so difference of God, comes through these angelic beings. Seraphim with, with six wings. What, what is this? You're thankful they've got six, because for two wings, they're covering their eyes. With the other two, they're kind of covering their feet. Like it was a normal bird, they'd fall out of the sky. Right? But here, they're still flying. And what they are doing is looking toward God. And the picture is these, these angelic beings who, are, I presume, are, are without sin. They still need to cover their eyes because of the brilliance, the brightness of this God. What would it be like, have you ever thought, to meet your Maker? To come face to face with the God who made the universe? What would it be like if He, right now, at this moment, opened those doors and walked in? What, what would happen? So many people have questions for God. We, we, we kind of want to come to God and say, look, why have you done this? In a sense, we have questions for God and we, we sense, look, if I were to meet God face to face, I'll tell you what, I'd have some questions to ask Him. Why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you step in at that moment? Why did this horrific event happen? Why is the world the way that it is? If I were God, I wouldn't do this. God, where have you been? What are you doing? So many questions come to our mind. Questions about God. But friends, we forget the holiness of this God. We forget how other He is. Isaiah, this prophet of God, sees this vision of God seated on His throne, high and lofty with His robe, filling the temple and His glory covering the whole of the earth. Now, I take it Isaiah is a pretty clean guy. He's God's prophet. He's been speaking about the way that um, Israel and Judah have been rejecting God. But when he sees this vision, when he sees God, he's petrified. He's freaked out. God shows him a picture of himself, even in a vision, And Isaiah is like, woe is me. Look at verse 4. The foundations of the doorways shook, and the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. In this vision, it's as if the doorway to God is shaking in its boots, saying, don't come here, don't enter in. This God is unlike anyone else. You should not be here. The smoke of a burning furnace is flowing out. And look at verse 5. Then Isaiah said, woe is me. For I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Point number two, the sinfulness of man. We do not recognize our own sinfulness. That's why we think we can waltz up to God. That's why we think we can have a view of God or we can like to think of God or this or that and question Him. But we do not realize what we are like. The holiness of God, His complete difference and perfection and otherness is so different from you and me and from Isaiah. 
He is not like us. We're so used to comparing ourselves with people that are, that are just like us, with, with one another here. People who get things wrong and haven't got life together. And so often in life, we look at others around us and think, you know, I'm not that bad. I don't do that much. It's kind of wrong. You know, I, I go to church sometimes. I give to charities. And we compare ourselves to others. And generally, I think if we're honest, we think we come out a little bit better. We know our motives. We know where we're at. For some of us, though, we, we might look around and feel like, I don't. We compare ourselves to others and we think we fall short. I'm not as good as them. I'm not as smart as them. I'm not as fit as they are. I'm not as popular as they are. When it comes to us and God, what we tend to do is to say, look, I'm not as bad as that other person. And we point to the, the people around us. At least I haven't killed anyone. At least I don't sleep around like them. At least I don't do the sort of stuff that Hitler did, as if that deserves a medal. Isaiah glimpses the holiness of God on his throne. And for the first time ever, he's not comparing himself to others, but to the holiness of the true and living God. Woe is me. Have you ever pictured yourself next to someone so perfect, so pure, so right, so powerful? He speaks and creation comes into being. And seen what you were like. When God turns up, we can't hide from Him. His sight penetrates to our hearts. He sees all we do. He hears all we say. He knows every thought we have, every desire, every longing. And if you're honest with yourself, you know your desires aren't right. You know you don't treat God as you ought. You know what runs through your mind. I was walking in here uh, to uni tonight, through the university. At the moment, we're looking for some new chairs for our morning church congregation and, uh, because we need some more. And I looked around, and there's about 50 chairs sitting out there. You know what I thought? We should just put them in the van. I'm like, what? Where did the, that, that's not right. That's stealing. Why? But why is that thought there? And that's just me walking to church tonight. I don't know about you. How many times you've done things? I mean, if you want to have a little thought experiment about whether... I'm right before the true and living God. Why don't you try just not to do anything wrong for an hour? Just for a whole hour. H have an hour where you're like, right, I'm not going to do anything wrong. Maybe you want to sleep. Might help. <laughs> but I guarantee you, if you get to the end of that hour without sinning, without doing something wrong, you'll feel proud and then have sinned. <laughs> Look at this, I did it, yes! <laughs> oh. When we compare ourselves to others, we think of ourselves as like a, a little torch in the middle of the night. You ever gone outside in the middle of the night with a torch? Suddenly like you're the power king. You turn it on and it's like, whoa, I can see. The darkness lights up. You're like, I'm pretty bright compared to everyone else around me. I'm pretty bright compared to the outdoors. But if you stay out there for a while until the sun rises, it's like God says, you ain't got nothing. <laughs> because as the sun rises, the puny and piddly brightness of this little torch that before looks so bright compared to the darkness around us, once the sun has risen, just disappears into insignificance. As soon as we are faced with the true and living God, it's like the sun has risen and put to shame any efforts we have had to live rightly. Now we stand embarrassingly dull, holding a little torch saying, I'm good. <laughs> the holiness of God shows up the sinfulness of mankind. Isaiah, he was God's mouthpiece, God's prophet. You can almost guarantee he was better than all of us combined in the way he lived, in his moral life. He just spent the last few chapters calling out the evil actions of God's people, Judah. Woe to the wicked, he said in chapter 3. Woe to the greedy, stop it. Look at chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of justice. Isaiah is a man standing, speaking to a nation, saying, stop turning your backs on God. Stop living such evil and wicked lives. He knows what it is like. But now as he gets a glimpse of the holiness of God himself, he realizes he cannot escape. His lips signify his words, and his words testify to the condition of his heart. 
Look at what he says in Mark 7. Look at what Jesus says in Mark 7 about the role of our lips and the condition of our heart. Mark 7, 20. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. There's so much. All these evils come from within and defile a person. It's not what we eat that makes us unclean, but what comes out of our mouth. Our words are a litmus test for our heart, for what we desire. You ever had that experience where you say something and you kind of see the words come out of your mouth in slow motion and you're like, ah, I want to grab them and put them back in because they're going to hurt someone. I didn't mean to say it that way. Well, you did think that way (laughs) because they show where your heart is really at. Friends, if if God were to walk in here today, if we were to see Him right here and right now, how would you respond? What would you do if He saw your whole lives laid bare before Him? Your deception, your lies, your, your, your rebellion against Him. Would you call that God to account? God, why haven't you done this or that? Would you fall to your knees and try and hide? Try to run from the one who shows you up like no other. Woe is me, says Isaiah, when he sees the true and living God. On the 20th of July in 1989, I was eight years old. Makes me 38 now, save you the maths. And we'd just celebrated at primary school the 20th anniversary of Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. Like, Classic, brilliant. 20 years that it happened. I remember being there. And we did this like parade. I don't know if you at primary school ever did these parades. I think they put them on as things you can be embarrassed about later on in life. But we had this parade where we had to come and we could we come dressed up kind of to celebrate the occasion. Now I'd grown up riding motorbikes, and so at home we had a full face motorbike helmet. It's pretty awesome. What did it look like? A space helmet. So I remember going to this parade with my my ski suit from the snow, kind of this grey striped suit, this kind of eight-year-old Rowan, this massive kind of full-face motorbike helmet on. And we made this like um, cardboard backpack that was on my back and it had vacuum cleaner hoses coming out of the box down the back of my top. Man, I was an astronaut. Oh, it was so awesome that day. I remember kind of there and we, we, had a, and we had this parade thing and we stood up and I thought, man, I was so proud. I'm the only kid at school that's got like a space helmet. It was this awesome moment. Uh, but then just afterwards, uh, we, the parade finished and everyone kind of went to the, the bathrooms to, um, to get changed and to, to go back out in the playground for morning tea. And um, my friend Alan and I, we thought, well, rather than go to the bathrooms, we'll just go back to the classroom. So we head back to the classroom, and we're like, well, there's no one here, there's no one coming in. So we just decided to get changed in the classroom, which seemed an appropriate thing to do at the time. So there I was, getting out of my space suit and into my school clothes, and everything was going fine until Rachel, the year three love of my life, (laughs) walked into the classroom. And it was only then, at that very moment, as her brilliance filled up the room, that I realised that the only thing that I was wearing was my underwear. <laughs> so I hid. To this day, I've got no idea whether she saw me or not. And she came in and I'm like, ah, because I felt so naked, so ashamed. Here I was standing in the classroom and it was fine with just Alan and I, but she'd walked in. And I'm suddenly like, this is not right. This is not okay. What else could I do? What else could I say at that moment? I was so embarrassed. I don't think I talked to her for the rest of the year. Imagine the embarrassment of standing before the true and living God on the day He turns up. He doesn't just see beneath our clothes, but into our hearts. Imagine the embarrassment of knowing that He knows everything you've said and done and thought. And when you look at His brilliance that lights up the earth, you're so broken and so sinful, and so evil. It's not just embarrassment, it's shame for the things we've said, the things that we've done, and the way that we've acted. The holiness of God shows up our sinfulness. We are nothing like God. He is so other, so different. How do you respond to God on that day? 
For we all will face God. We'll all have to give an account when he comes. The real king is coming back. How will you respond? What will you do? The usual response is, well, what I've got to do is to prepare for that day, to do the best I can now, to, to try and be spiritual in some way, to come to church, to, to, to read the Bible, to, to be a good person, to give to charities, to love my family, to, to do whatever I can to forward society. But the problem is, there's just not enough good in the world to make up for a life lived rejecting God. To think that we can somehow kind of do something for God to make Him happy with us, is like trying to buy your spouse a bunch of flowers to apologize for a life of adultery. Oh, sorry, here you go, we're sweet. No, you idiot. It's disgusting, isn't it? To think that we can offer this God something so meager as, oh, I went to church a couple of times, or I was generous, it's just crazy. The truth is there is nothing, Isaiah, or you or I can say to the true and living God to make up for what we've done, for the difference between us and God, for our brokenness, our sinfulness, our rebellion, and His perfectness. But that's when we see God's surprising response to Isaiah. The surprise, surprising response. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and I'd be freaked out, right? <laughs> what is it? It's coming towards me. And in his hand was a glowing coal, and you've got to be thinking, I'm gone. Like, seriously, this guy's got fire in his hand. And in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, now here's the surprise. You ready? Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin atoned for. Far out. Isaiah, who is saying, woe is me, I'm ruined for God has seen me as I am and I've seen him and how holy he is, is now forgiven. He's been wiped whiter than the snow. His, his sin has been dealt away with because of this burning coal that touched his lips. He should have been ruined completely, but now he's in right relationship with God. How is that possible? Well, in this vision, the seraphim has placed on Isaiah's lips the very window to his heart, right? The lips are the window to the heart. He's placed on Isaiah's lips a burning coal from the altar of the temple. Now, we're unsure exactly what altar it was. There's a couple of altars in the, in the temple um, uh, set up. <laughs> Probably the altar where they would sacrifice um, lambs and goats on to be able to say to God, we deserve to die. The altar of sacrifice was there to say that, look, we as, as God's people, we have not treated you rightly. Our only hope is that you look upon this ram or this, this goat and its death in my place to say, pour out your judgment on it. May it get what I deserve so I don't have to get what I deserve. It was a sacrifice and substitute in their place. And that sacrifice would be burnt as a symbol of what ought to happen to the sinner. We ought to be burnt. We ought to be wasted. But instead, God accepted the sacrifice, the blood of another. And here in this vision, the burning coals from the foot of the blood-stained altar touch the lips, the window to the heart of the broken Isaiah. Your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. God was pouring out His anger on someone else and Isaiah didn't have to pay. Ah, oh, imagine that moment, knowing that if God walked in the room, that there was nothing to worry about. My sins had been dealt with and removed, and I'm now at one with God, atoned for. And the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of the sacrificial animals in the Old Testament never actually did anything for the people of Israel, other than show their obedience to God's way of saving them. They were merely a sign, a shadow pointing forward to a greater sacrifice, where on a blood-stained altar of a wooden cross, another lamb would be nailed and His blood would be spilt. The moment God's Son, Jesus of Nazareth, steps onto the human stage, John the Baptist cries out in the book of John, Behold, look, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, when Jesus came and died on that Roman cross, he wasn't dying for his own sin, for any of his own brokenness. He had no sin. He was not broken. There was no deceit in his mouth. There was no rebellion to be had with Jesus. No, he died for your sin and for mine. For every thought that we've had that has rejected the true and living God, for every time we have thought wrongly of another, of our God, and not lived His way rightly, Jesus took the punishment. God the Son's life was given for you. I hope that lets you see the depth of our brokenness, the depth of our sin, that the only way to solve the problem of my sin and yours was God the Son dying in my place. That's a costly debt that we owe, isn't it? And a costly debt that God bore. There's nothing in this passage here that Isaiah does other than receive the amazing mercy of God, not getting what he deserves and having his sins wiped clean. So it is with us. For those who come to Jesus, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can say other than Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you died in my place. Thank you that you you rose again to give new life. My only hope is that you've died and taken the penalty that I deserve. Let me ask you tonight, have you seen the forgiveness offered to you in Jesus? Have you accepted the one who, who, who bled in your place, who died so that you don't have to? Or are you still planning to face God on your own two feet and think, she'll be right. I'll just do my best and see what happens. Well, no sooner than Isaiah is cleansed of his sin, he hears the word of the Lord. And we see he's a willing servant. He's a willing servant. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. Quick as a flash, Isaiah here says, he hears God's voice, he hears God has a mission to be done, and he's just seen the holiness of God. He's looked into the throne room and amazed at who this God is and what he has done, and the fact that now he has been wiped clean, God says, I have a mission, I need to send someone, and Isaiah says, pick me. He's so amazed by God. He doesn't even know what the mission is. He doesn't know what God's going to say. He's like that kid up the front of of the classroom. When the teacher's like, who wants to? He's like, me! (laughs) Every time Isaiah is so amazed that God says, given what you've done for me, given who you are, that there is none like you, I'm in. I'm there, no matter what it is. No matter what length I need to go to, send me. And God says, go. The willing servant steps up to the plate and God says, go. But the result of the message he's given is surprising again. The result of the message in verse 9. And God replied, go. Say to these people, okay, you ready? This is the message to say to this wayward people. You ready? Say to these people, keep listening. And Isaiah's like, yes, keep listening. But do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears, blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds and turn back and be healed. Isaiah's like, what? What is God saying to this people of Judah, God's people? So we ask you, verse 11, until when, Lord? How long? It's a short, surely, you know? This is going to be a short amount of time. And the Lord replies, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. The problem with the people of God this whole time is that they have not listened. God has been speaking to them, telling them what to do. He spoke from Mount Sinai. He sent them into the promised land. They were there, but they didn't take him seriously. 
the evilness just took over. Their sinfulness was so strong. What we see is that there comes a time when God says, enough is enough. No more, Israel. And Isaiah's message was to speak God's word to Israel, knowing they wouldn't listen. Knowing that God is saying to them, enough. Here's your mission, Isaiah. Go into Israel, speak my word, knowing they will not hear you, and I'll smash them all. Happy mission. (laughs) I mean, how would you feel at this point? There's nothing wrong with the message he's to speak. It's just that God had enough with this wayward child Judah. They hadn't listened. And so now when Isaiah speaks, they will not hear. Sometimes we think we deserve blessing. We hear moments like this and think, that's not fair. Oh, but it's very much fair. What would be fair is if God ended every single one of our heartbeats right now. Because none of us deserves to be in relationship with Him. All of us are sinful and broken. None of us deserves to be clean before God. We think we can live our lives away from God, ignoring God, against God, and have no ramifications, with no regard for His ways. But the message Israel are about to learn, and we'll see over the coming weeks, is this. Do not presume upon God's grace. Do not take the true and living God to be a fool, thinking that you can get past, that He doesn't see what's going on. Do not think, oh, He is love, He'll forgive, He'll forget. While both love and forgiveness are characteristics of the true and living God, so is His justice, giving what is right, and His judgment. The Word of God always does what God intends. And sometimes that is to bring judgment, to show He is just. Judgment that is right and deserving and brings glory and honour and praise to Him. You know when the police catch a criminal and everyone's like, yes, they caught him, he got what he deserved, this is right. There's a rightness to justice, to people getting what they deserve. The only problem is, he's talking to us. And the justice is what we deserve. And we don't like that. God's word never returns empty. It always does his work. And if you think about it for a moment, salvation and judgment are the flip side of the same coin. Let me give you an illustration from it. Let's, let's say you, you're out to sea and the boat that you're on capsizes. You're like a long way off the coast. You, there's no way you could swim back, nothing. You're out there. You, you, you're floating in the water. When out of the blue, because of nothing that you did, this ship comes past and they lean over the side and say, hold on, we'll save you. You're like paddling water like you've been for the last four hours. They say, look, there's no other ships coming. We're the only salvation. We've got no other ships on the radar. There's no one else around. Get on and we'll save you. Trust us and we'll take you. That message is a great message of salvation, but it's also a message of judgment. If you reject that salvation, what they're saying is there is no one else. You're on your own and you'll die. So it is with the Word of God. He brings great salvation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you reject that salvation, that message was judgment for you. What will the Word of God be for you tonight? Salvation or judgment? As we get to the end of Isaiah's message, or the vision that God gives Isaiah in chapter 6, we see that Israel's rejection, Judah's rejection of God will mean that God rejects them and we're going to see it get worse and worse and worse. But amidst God's judgment, there is something else. The very last verse of of chapter 6 contains a glimmer of hope. Look at it with me. Verse 13. Though a tenth will remain in the land. You're like, wow, a tenth are going to stay there. God's going to save a tenth. Though a tenth will remain in the land it will be burned again. <laughs> so you're like, oh, okay, they'll remain and get burned. There was a glimmer, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is a stump. 10% will be, will be left there, will remain, only to be burned again. That's the good news. <laughs> but what's left behind is a charred stump. 
Israel will never be any more than a charred stump of a nation into the future. But from that stump will grow a holy seed, holy, separate, other. A descendant who would be different. God would send prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel. His love and judgment would come hand in hand because they would keep rejecting these prophets. He would keep sending prophet and prophet and prophet until finally he sent his son. They didn't listen to him either. They nailed him to a cross. But it's at the cross, at the altar of God's judgment, where wrath and mercy meet. And that's because we have far more hope than Isaiah. So we need to appreciate the, the theological time zone that we live in. Isaiah's mission was to proclaim a message that would be rejected. But because of Jesus, you and I, right here, right now, tonight, we live in a different age. We live in a different time when rejecting the message of God is not the foregone conclusion. In Acts 28, uh, the Apostle Paul, who's sent by Jesus to, to the nations around, is arrested. Now, he's in house arrest, there's a, there's a prisoner there, he's chained up, and he calls together all the Jews in Romans, says, come together, the Jewish leaders, I want to speak to you about the salvation that I've been speaking of. Have a look with me at this Acts 28, verse 23, on the screen. After arranging a day with him, this is the, the Jewish leaders, they came to him at his lodging. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade these Jewish leaders about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. Disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. What was the statement that he made? What was the statement that made the Jews leave his house? He quoted Isaiah 6. Look at this. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors, Jews, through the prophet Isaiah, when he said, Go to these people and say, you will always be listening, but never understanding. You will always be looking, but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing. They have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Paul applies Isaiah 6 to the people of Israel, people who reject God's salvation, people who rejected the only true Israelite Jesus, that stump and holy seed. What do they do? They walk out of the room, these Jews. And for you tonight, that will be the question. Will you be like these Jews who have heard of God's holiness, have seen and recognized your own sinfulness, but you reject the only way of salvation? Will that be you? But as they leave, Paul shows that a new age has dawned. Look at Acts 28, 28. Great verse to remember. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, to the nations. And then there are the best three words that I've heard in a long time. They will listen. After 700 years of hardness of all people, we now live in an age of optimism. These three words on that screen right there change everything. We've changed time zones because Jesus has come. They will now listen to the hope of who Jesus is and trust Him. And you just got to look around this room to see now there are people here tonight who trusted Jesus, who listened because of the work of God through Jesus. The message of God has been sent to the nations, to the Gentiles. They will listen. So often as Christians, we have such a pessimistic view about the work of God. We think, you know, it's a hard land and the, the government's against Christianity and Christianity will always be small and people aren't going to hear of Jesus and trust Him. We think God won't grow His church and people won't listen and our mission is going to be debilitated and dysfunctional from the beginning. That's not what Paul says. We live in an age when the nations will listen. As we went about setting our 2030 vision as a church, we, we've been praying that God would bring to Himself, by the year 2030, 2,030 people. As we hear that, some, some kind of went, oh, that, that feels so big. There's a sense in which I feel like, oh, I don't know, it's a bit 
presumptuous that God will work through us to see 2,030 people saved in, in 11 years. But others of us went, that's too small. There's 1.5 million people in this city who don't know Jesus. And Paul says now, because of Jesus, that the nations will listen. He doesn't promise that everyone will come to him, but they will listen. Friends, get this message of Paul is unlike the message of Isaiah. For we live in a different age. The age we live in is an age where the, where the problem isn't, will they listen, but will I go? Our neighbours, our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our family, our colleagues and fellow students and, and lecturers, all of them are waiting to listen to us. Waiting for someone like you or me to put up our hands and say, given who God is and how holy He is and what He has done for me, I'll go, pick me, let me speak. I mean, what could the world do that this God is not in control of? What could be worse than this God seeing who I am and sentencing me to death forever, but now He's forgiven me because of nothing I've done? I'll speak. Well, what can I be afraid of? Friends, the day of Jesus' return is coming. And He will judge the living and the dead. He is not like any other. King of kings and Lord of lords is written across His thigh. Holiness is what describes Him. And you and I and everyone else on the face of the planet who has ever lived will come into His presence. And the only thing that can stop you or I from being burnt to a crisp is if we put our trust in the one that was burnt for us on that Roman cross. Do you need to do business with God tonight? He sees you. He knows you. And He offers you forgiveness. Have you recognized who you are in His sight? Do you need to put up your hand to God and say, send me. I'm with you. I am in. Because Paul says this, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the nations and they will listen. I started seriously thinking about Christianity during my gap years where I was working at my parents' shop after dropping out of uni. Like, I was never really spiritual. My family were, but they kind of were just because they liked the festivals and the holidays around it. And for me, I just also liked the holidays around it too, but as a like religion, I never really thought about something like that. So Hannah and I met up one day and we're hanging out and then she's like, oh, I have to leave early or something because I got to go to church. And I'm like, can I come too? I'm not sure why Juliana decided to come to church. I, I think she was free that evening. Um, she and I hung around the city in the afternoon. Like we watched a movie and then we had dinner. Um, and then I told her that oh, I actually have somewhere to go after this. Um, I, have, I have church. It's actually just a few minutes away from here. Do you want to come with me? And she said, okay. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, trying to hide my excitement. I decided to come to church because really I was lonely. I was working at my parents' shop like six days a week. And after work, I'm tired, so I stay home. And I don't hang out with friends because they're all at uni or they're working. With Hannah, we barely hang out. So I decided to just hang out with her and then when she asked if I wanted to go to church, I'm like, yo, this is... I didn't think of it at the time, but in hindsight, it was a nice opportunity to meet new people. So I only really went to church to meet new people and not be lonely. I saw a lot of, um, a lot of the church members just talking to her and asking her, inviting her to explaining Christianity. I really appreciated that, knowing that I'm not alone in this, but we as a church share the same vision of seeing people come to know Christ. And then I came a couple times and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm coming here for Hannah. I'm coming here for like 
just being around people. I'm not here for the actual religion. I went to uh, Explaining Christianity, which is like this course that is like for people thinking about Christianity. It helped a lot with my questions, but it didn't really made me think, you know, this, this religion is legit. It didn't make me think that at all. I was like, yeah, this Jesus guy is cool, but was he real? Like, if he's real, then that's life-changing. <laughs> I didn't really want to, like, kind of find out. But as I kept going to explaining Christianity and going to church, I kind of, like, I needed to find out. So I read a lot of books about the evidence towards Christianity and evidence against it. And I just came to the conclusion that Jesus is real. And then basically after reading the couple books, I'm like, yeah, okay, might as well. I just didn't realize how God worked through such a small conversation with Juliana. And I, I barely meet her, like, I don't see her that often. And I, did, I wasn't really expecting um, for her to come to church. I wasn't expecting her to look into Christianity more. I didn't know she was in that stage of her life that she was looking for purpose and um, maybe identity as well. Take every opportunity you can to share the gospel to your friends. Um, don't let fear of rejection or fear of people prevent them from hearing the good news of Jesus. Um, and yeah, care for your friend more than your friendship. To a person who's thinking about Christianity, know this that no matter what you may think, no matter what you've experienced, whether or not Christianity is real is the most important thing. Because if Christianity is real, it's like the biggest thing. And you need to know, no matter what. We're going to spend uh, a couple of moments with some questions. So if you've texted stuff through, hopefully there's uh, a few questions to answer, uh, and then uh, we'll come back together in a second. Uh, nowadays, we have sufficient evidence that many animals had gone extinct before humans came to Earth, e.g. dinosaurs. What do you think happened to them? Did God eliminate these animals? Yeah, great question. Uh, I, I think um, the Earth definitely looks old as we look at it. Uh, and we see bones of massive animals, and you think, well, how did these happen? I think you've got to go, yep, the plan is that these animals died. That's part of God's plan. He's in control. Um, now, we could have wrong views of history and geology. It doesn't, I don't think we do. Um, but I think you've got to stand there and go, yep, that's what's happened. Uh, they have been eliminated at this point in time, and that's part of God's plan. Question number two. Uh, what do you think of, take, well, animals. What, what did I say? What do you think of talking animals in the Bible? Most of them are bad, like the snake, right? Don't listen to talking snakes. Um, uh, do you think God made them uh, speak the language of the person or more telepathic? Yeah. Uh, my, my honest answer is I have no idea. Question number three. Uh, God has His thumbprint on human history. Uh, then why is so much of it bleak? Why does the world currently feel so terrible? Why does God in control feel like such an empty statement? How can we be affirmed of His control when everything's falling apart? Great question. Uh, and I want to say, I think I agree with you. You look at the world around us and it doesn't feel good. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it is as it ought to be. But that's exactly what the Bible says, exactly what Isaiah has is, is been saying, God is saying through Isaiah, the reason the world is so broken isn't because um, God is somehow wanting it to be broken, but He's allowing us to see the reality of our need for Him. See, if we, if we want God to stop all the brokenness that exists in our world, if we say, God, if you are good, why don't you stop it all right here and right now? You, you know He could. But we're actually asking Him to stop everyone who, who, who creates evil, everyone who acts in an evil way. And that means we're asking Him to stop me and you, because we create hurt uh, in the lives of others. We don't treat God as we ought. So we're saying, Lord, I want you to stop the brokenness. I actually want you to stop me. But God, in His love, He doesn't do that right now. So the reason um, Peter tells us in 1 Peter uh, that, that God hasn't come back yet and stopped it is He's giving people time to recognize that we need his solution to our problem. He's giving time for you and for me to come to Him and trust in Jesus. Why is there so much suffering if God is in control? Well, because He's allowed us 
to act the way we want to act. And he's provided a great cost to himself and his son, a solution to the problem. And he is waiting now for people to listen. And so all I can say to that is, we can recognize he is in control. When you see the world breaking apart, recognize I'm broken too. And I need a savior. And come to him. Don't stand back going, oh, I don't think that's right. I don't think this is right. Come to the solution. Trust the son. Uh, Last question. What leads you to the conclusion that God is good? Anyone can claim to be good or even perfectly good. Yeah, great question. What leads me to the conclusion that God is good? There's a number of things. Uh, Philosophically, we could get to the point of going, well, um, this idea of God is the one who sets up what good and evil is. It's definitely what you see at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. God creates the world and it was good. And it was good, and it was good, is the repeated refrain of His creating effort. What we're seeing is the Bible's claim is that God created the world, He made everything, and He defines what good is. Adam and Eve step onto the world stage, uh, under God, uh, and they've been told how to live in God's world, and here's where it links in. They listen to the talking snake, (laughs) right? And they listen to, to, to Satan say, surely you won't die if you do what... God said you shouldn't do. And so Adam and Eve begin to create a good for themselves. They think they know better than God what is good for them. And so they eat of the apple, or whatever fruit it was, who knows, this, this, this tree of a knowledge of good and evil, and then death enters the world because they've rejected the true and living God. And human history shows that really humanity does not have a good grasp of what good is. Left to ourselves, we do all sorts of horrific wrongs, set off nuclear bombs, take out whole nations. We're not good. We can't be good in and of ourselves, but we have this idea of what good is. And where does that come from? Well, the Bible tells us it's because we're made in the image of God. And it's stitched into the very fabric of humanity is this desire to do what is right, and God sets up what that right is. Yes, anyone can claim to be good, But what we see is through God's actions throughout history that He is. He is good. He acts rightly. There's justice. It lines up with kind of our view. And and He does it at great expense to Himself. He is so just, He won't let, He won't just kind of wipe away sin and say, that's right, I'll forget about it. He says, no, it must be paid for. And so Jesus dies in our place. When I see the actions of God, I see that He is good. But the real question comes down to who will you let define what good is? Will it be your conception of good or it will be God's? And that's really the choice you've got to make. Who who am I going to allow to be God, me or Him? And we all get to make that choice and to live that out and to make um, the decisions to, to treat the world the way we think good is. But in the end, the question will come down to, is God God or am I God? And the reality is, will I face the true and living God or will I not? And for me, history shows that Jesus really existed, that He lived and died. You can see it. No ancient historian on the face of the planet will deny that Jesus of Nazareth lived and died. That He said the things the Bible says He said. Well, that's up for debate, but secular sources say that Jesus said that He was the way, the truth, and the life. That people worshipped Him as a divine being, and they said He rose from the dead. There's a resurrection-shaped dent in history, no matter what you think. It looks like Jesus lived and died and rose again. And so with that evidence, you have to work out if He did rise from the dead, just like He promised He would do, just like we're going to see was prophesied about Him 700 years before He came, if that really happened, well, there's so much evidence for me to think that God is in control, that Jesus is God the Son, that He has died in our place, that He has risen again and that He is coming back. And if that's true, then He is God and He defines what good is. Really, that's, that's the key question. Who defines good? You or God? Well, let's pray together. Father, as we think through the big questions of life, about who you are and who we are, as we, as we look to you and your otherness, your difference, your holiness, if we're honest, we are ashamed. We're ashamed of the way that we have acted. We're ashamed of not putting you first. We're ashamed of the things we think and say and do. But we are so thankful that you provided for us forgiveness. 
that you've offered to take away our, our rebellion and sin so that we might stand forgiven. So we ask tonight, Lord, that you would put what Jesus has done at the cross front and center in our lives and that by your spirit you draw us to yourself to, to trust you. And Lord, we ask that you would then send us, send us into your world to speak your truth. For you are the holy God and there is no one like you. We pray this in Jesus' name.